Welcome to my podcast, In the Know. My series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no-tell. Hello and welcome to In the Know. Today I have the great privilege, really more than a privilege, one of the legends in the greats of Silicon Valley and tech in general, Guy Kawasaki. Hi, Guy. Hi. Have you had your lunch yet? No. <laughs> You're standing between me and lunch. My God. My God. That's not a place I want to be. <laughs> I take it you're not doing the daily fasting at this point. No, fasting and guys are is an oxymoron. Really? You have three meals a day or six? Depends how you define a meal. <laughs> well, part of why we have you on this episode is to learn, well, to borrow a phrase from Nietzsche and Ekehomo, how I, why I am so smart. He's got a whole chapter. And uh, to be a legend and a much venerated leader of, the movement that we, the entrepreneurs, participate in, we got to know why you are so smart. <laughs> okay. This is going to be a short podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll start with your diet. How about that? And then your exercise rhythm. And we'll continue from there. Okay. Well, first of all, you're, you're making some kind of uh, assumption that correlation and causation you know, may be the same thing. I'll give you the gist of it. I'm not exactly, uh, I try to control my simple carbs, let's say. And that's about it. I, well, I also try to eat very little meat. Um, and it's not because I have some, you know, vegan passion. It's just, I once interviewed Jane Goodall and I said, well, what can people do to fight climate change? And she said, well, one simple thing everybody can do is not eat as much meat. So I said, okay, done. So I eat no meat, or I hardly eat meat. I just ate a burger yesterday. <laughs> well, flexitarian, right? I mean, a lot of people labor under the misapprehension that doing the right thing means being an ideologue or an extremist about it. And if you eat less meat, that's better than eating more meat, isn't it? And if you eat a tiny bit or none, that's a bit better than eating a medium amount. And I think yep. tourism is overstated, isn't it? <laughs> well, I'm glad you said that. So that's kind of my diet I I, uh, every year, I try to have a resolution and swear off one more bad thing for me. So I have not drank any soda in years. And I also, one year, made a resolution, no more French fries. So I have not eaten French fries in years. Oh, my Lord. And, How long have you been doing this thing? You must be stacking up vices like nobody's business. Well, the problem is I'm not losing weight, so I don't understand. But okay. <laughs> so as far as exercise, you know, I surf. I am in the summer right now, but I surf probably three to five hours every day. I love to surf. You're taking me from my surfing to, I don't know if surfing is exactly aerobic in the sense of, you know, running 26 miles. It may be more anaerobic, but it burns a lot of calories. That's unbelievable. How on earth does a guy so busy and productive as you find three to five hours a day to surf? Well, you're making the assumption that I'm busy and productive, so I... <laughs> well, I'm judging only by cumulative impact, guy, I think it cannot be disputed. <laughs> well, I'm just living off my reputation. <laughs> <laughs> I see. I see, which somebody else apparently made. Read. Well, I mean, reputation, and this is what I want to investigate with you, and this is why I invited you to talk with me. So the conceit of In the Know, this podcast, which has now taken me to some of the really great minds in our world today, the conceit is, I'm running this company. I've built a bunch over time. This one's getting big. No tell. We're here, there. We're everywhere. Truly yeah. 
I think, the largest thing I've ever been involved in. And w- one of the great pleasures of this work is it takes me to some of the best cities in the world where we operate uh-huh. our flexible office platform, and it puts me in front of some of the most interesting leaders who are building things in the world. And as I bump into these people, I have these private conversations which are so rewarding and enriching for me and I think could be of great benefit to others. Now, if I had that opportunity, what would I ask these folks and how would I share it with others? And in the know, if it's going to be a series, why should it have any less of an ambition than anything else I do? How can I take this media property, which is 25, 30 episodes, and try to take it on the quest of making it one of the largest and most impactful properties in the world? That's okay. the conceit. Now, this is a ridiculous conceit, I think, you know, just to start from nowhere and turn it into like a Bloomberg or, or Fox or something like that over the decade to come. But, you know, I have your attention. We have a few minutes. You told me how much you surf. This is what I want to find out. And the signature notion I want to start with is something that I'm sure you get bored of, but it's still in your email signature, is evangelism. The yeah. word that you brought to our tribe, the Silicon Valley <laughs> tribe, that tries to make well, change. I mean, the there was Jesus before me, but okay. <laughs> it was a 2,000-year gap. Uh-huh. Well, there's Martin Luther and Muhammad and all these other people <laughs> along the way. But then you showed up. And I guess, when was it exactly in the 80s or was it the late 70s that you show up at Apple and you, and you end up with this title? Uh, it was 1983. Oh, like right at the start. I mean, it's a few yeah. years after the thing is rolling, but it's before like all the covers of all the magazines and all that, isn't it? I mean, it was just before Macintosh was introduced. And what was the job description that was like published in the local newspaper that Apple seeks a chief evangelist? Please apply. No, no. well, first of all, I wasn't chief evangelist. I was merely an evangelist. And the reason why I got the job is because of nepotism. That is, my college classmate hired me to work for him. And this evangelism comes from a Greek word meaning bringing the good news. So I brought the good news of Macintosh that it would make people more creative and productive. And my job was to convince developers to create Macintosh products and to, you know, see the light. Is that literally the title that you had the first day you walked in? Software evangelist, yes. Amazing. I mean, that itself is an inspired choice. What a decision. Well, I I had nothing to do with the choice, but yeah. (laughs) I just gave you the shoes to put your feet in. Well, you got to do what you got to do, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so what did it mean at the beginning for you? So you, it was basically like developer community, developer relations. Yes. Like it's a thing that has, has become an art and science over the years. Uh, yes. And what you do is go visit people that made like Windows software and say, hey, guys, it'd be cool if you made it on the Mac. You'll make a little more money. Well, I mean, that's not historically accurate because... Oh, I'm sorry, um, DOS software? Or, yeah, because yeah, whoever would take an appointment, basically. So Apple II developers, MS-DOS developers, you know, Lotus, Ashton Tate, Microsoft, WordPerfect, all the big boys. And uh, we prophetized them. We, we tried to show them that there would be another viable platform and they should get on it. So uh, you, how'd you come up with your target list? Somebody who makes software. Did you make a target list or did you just follow intuition? Yeah, absolutely. We made a target list. Uh, back then, believe it or not, software was delivered in packages. I mean, you physically bought something with a manual that was shrink wrap. I and do so believe those... it, yeah. Not everyone listening <laughs> is going to believe it, but it was like buying an LP or a CD, yeah. one of those long boxes. I, I think exactly. I had Netscape as package software. I had Claris Works. Uh, I had yep. Printmaker Pro. <laughs> I had yep. quite a lot of From Protobot, yep. So because it was physical distribution, there had to be physical distributors. And there was a huge distributor down in L.A. called SoftCell. And SoftCell 
Actually, it was in L.A., not Orange County. I think it was in L.A. Anyway, SoftSell, and it was a distributor of software, and SoftSell had a SoftSell hot list where they publish, you know, what's selling in Apple II and MS-DOS, et cetera. That was kind of a good starting point to see, you know, who's being successful in the software business. Go get them to do Macintosh. So that's your list. And then that's you got to open list. the door. So how'd you open the door? How'd you, how'd you get the meeting? You know, back then, you contacted them and said, you're from Apple. You have a hot new, you know, computer coming. Would you like to see it? And you got in. It wasn't a problem. Exciting company, exciting new product. And you're going to show some leg privately in the meeting where you're going to let them see something in the future. Yes. That was the deal. uh, That was the deal. But don't get me wrong. I mean, it's easy to look back now and say, oh, yeah, you know, that was the deal because Apple has become this trillion dollar company, you know, the most successful, et cetera, et cetera. So you're thinking, oh, back then it wasn't that hard. Well, back then it was hard because, yeah, we weren't IBM yet. Were you exciting? The product was extremely exciting. It was, you know, completely was the company exciting. Was prima facie, like did the business Pri- card turn heads? In certain places, yes. I mean, not in Fortune 500 companies. You know, Fortune 500 companies, many of those people's attitude was, "This is a toy. Apple II or Macintosh were toys, not like MS DOS." And so, uh-huh. yeah. I mean, so the analogy to the know, present would be like someone from Slack trying to get a meeting at like uh, John Deere or something. <laughs> or, yeah, I mean, that would be a good analogy. Or someone from Canva trying to get an appointment at John Deere, and John Deere has standardized on Adobe. That would right, be Canva's very this good like toy on the iPhone for making PowerPoint-ish stuff, and they're like, come on. Yeah, but as we know, <laughs> sometimes Apple and Canva can succeed. Two for two, actually. Yeah. So, well, David sometimes yeah. wins. Yeah, David. Okay, so you get the meeting. Yeah. And I want to get in your head on this because the reason this whole narrative is so, such important lore in the mythology of our tribe mm-hmm. is because it worked and you set the archetype for something that people have tried to repeat and refine a thousand times. But you did the first 10 or 20 meetings with a certain kind of game plan when you walk into the into the meeting with probably yeah. not the CEOs of these companies, maybe some engineer or or I don't even know if people had the title product manager back in the day. No, often the CEOs, because back then the software company, software business much smaller. You know, it wasn't these mm. billion-dollar companies. It was the CEO or the VP of engineering. And uh, let me give you the gist of it. So the gist of it is called guys' golden touch. And guys' golden touch is not that whatever I touch turns to gold. Guys' golden touch is whatever is gold guy touches. And so oh. Macintosh was so different. And so we tried to appeal to people on you know, sort of several platforms. So one was, this is finally the technical environment because of the richness of our ROMs that you can finally write the software you dreamed about. So, you know, here it is, entirely new palette from which you can call upon. So that was one. Another approach was, this is a right now a one-horse race where there's IBM making software for the IBM PC, and if I decides to make your kind of software, you're screwed, so you better get on a second platform. So if IBM starts to compete with you, at least you have yeah, Macintosh to go to. So that was the second one. And the third one was, you know, there's only so many people who can handle MS-DOS in this world. If we're going to expand the pie, if we're going to raise the tide, we have to have a computer that's much easier to use like Macintosh. And so we had those three basic approaches. And 
I think that third point is the most visionary, perhaps. Yeah, but hey, I wasn't into being visionary. I was into succeeding. So uh, we hit them with those three. And um, one thing I learned is that if people are at all open to supporting your cause, they often will tell you how to sell to them. You just have to be smart enough to shut up and listen. That is a lesson for your tribe, which is, you know, you go in with a pitch, you know, a multi-pronged pitch, and you listen to what interests the people in your pitch, and then you just focus on that part of the pitch. Three pages in the keynote, so to speak. And as you take one meeting after the next, you figure out which ones to throw out. I don't want to give that impression. That implies that you make a few pitches, you hear what resonates, and then you select one. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you go into every meeting with three pitches. And in the meeting, I think you'll see a point where if it's an engineering-driven company, they'll say, holy shit, this is the first time I've seen where I can make the software I've been dreaming about. Well, then you drop the other two pitches in the meeting. But the next meeting you go to, the CEO may say, you know, you're so right. We're on a we're on only the IBM PC. If the IBM PC, if they start competing with us, we're screwed. We got to get on another platform. Well, then you drop the engineering pitch and you focus on the financial, you know, two-horse race pitch. So I'm not saying you drop the ones that aren't working for the future ones. I'm saying you go in there with three things and you in the meeting, you decide which one to focus on. It's very interesting. And does it also end up being the case that the customer gives you a whole new reason for being that you then embrace in the meeting and you take with them? I don't recall that happening. It may have. I mean, maybe we went in with only one pitch and <laughs> then after a few meetings, we ended up with three. But I, I can't remember, you know, on day one, did we have those three formulated? No, we were making it up as we go. Don't. Don't get me wrong. And how did you measure the effectiveness of these engagements? I mean, the, like what we now call the evangelical fail. Uh, well, you got to get to the next step. Do not use the word evangelical. It is evangelistic. Evangelical is a very specific term that re- refers to a type of Christianity. Right. And right. let's just say that today, evangelical has a very different meaning. It's rather distracting if you think about Iowa and the Supreme Court a little bit more than you think about. Exactly. I mean, you know, maybe it'll work in Alabama, but I would not be using that all over the place. All right. The evangelistic sale. Okay. Correction to our community. However, what's the next step you try to exit with? Like, what what do you try to land? Is it something tangible or have you planted the seed and you're going to come back and visit them later? Well, I mean, usually they would say, okay, we want to start development, and then we have to figure out how do we get them the prototype, how do we get them the tools, all that kind of stuff. It was not a hard sell to get people started because we had a very exciting technology. It was very different. We had those three solid reasons, and it was a small, nimble industry back then. Getting people started wasn't that hard. It was getting them to finish because writing Mac software was a whole new ballgame. Now, in the fullness of time, mm-hmm. by the late 90s, I think folks were riding the postmortems on that horse race to capture mm-hmm. the minds of developers, mm-hmm. and they were giving Gates and the uh, the Bellevue Company a lot of, or is it Bellevue? Red, Redmond Company, a mm-hmm. lot of credit for having won over so much of a developer community, so many apps, all these crappy little friggin' things for the Windows platform. And... Um, 
it was a hugely important part of the contest where I think folks perceive the primary value proposition of Apple in the 80s and early 90s as being a consumer-centric one, the third of your arguments, that there's a way bigger mm-hmm. universe of people that are going to find the Mac GUI and, and the way we design stuff to be far more accessible, far easier to use. But what you're pointing out is how important and how hard the work was of converting the other side of the marketplace. I mean, in a way, a two-sided marketplace, right, where you have developers and on the other side, you have customers and Ma- Apple and Mac are sitting in the middle. And, and I wonder if you thought of it as a two-sided marketplace and if you sort of kept score on how deeply you were penetrating and how many apps and how many verticals and how many companies were making things for Mac and how you were sort of well, tracking it through the 80s. My role was limited. My role was my customer was developers. So my job was to make developers finish software so that there would be killer apps and compelling reasons so that the ultimate consumer, you know, Joe Blow and Jane Doe, would buy Macintoshes to do a plethora of different functions. But my customer, Guy's customer, was developers. Or may I say it as developers, developers, developers? developers, developers, developers. <laughs> Just like it's the economy, stupid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the line from Bomber jumping up and down at some uh, sales conference. <laughs> that. But did you keep track of the, you use the term killer app, and this is so interesting because these days in two-sided marketplaces, people don't talk that often about quality of supply in a two-sided marketplace. Like the killer app is basically a way of saying, I don't need every single piece of software to be on the Mac platform. I need the critical ones. I need, you know, Photoshop. Yeah. I need, I need the stuff that's just going to make people buy a whole computer because they need that app. And, yeah. and it's about quality and, and and usefulness fundamentally. Yeah. I mean, do you think that that's a, a way of thinking that has been lost a little bit on just pure raw size? Like, you know, how many rooms does Airbnb have versus does Airbnb have the right ones? I have several thoughts here. So one thought is there really hasn't been any kind of new platform per se since iOS and Android. So iOS and Android have had get critical mass, right? So to get critical mass, you have to convince people to believe in Android and believe in iOS before there was an installed base. But I would say that's the last time it happened. So now, you know, no one's out there convincing people to write iOS apps from Apple. I mean, there are developer relations people helping that process be better, faster, easier, et cetera. Well, it just doesn't look evangelistic anymore, right? It looks like marketing. Yeah, well, because <laughs> once you have 200 million phones out there or whatever they have, <laughs> you don't have to convince too many developers that this is an install base worth tapping. So that Well, and there's a bunch of false starts since then, right? I mean, like the, the AR, VR stuff is just a True. plain Good old point. flop You're right. by that standard. Well, I mean, Good it's a point. flop. And it wouldn't even come to mind. Like, but is it a flop because the, they failed to bring the gospel to the developers or just because there isn't a killer app? Well, I mean, just as success has many fathers, failure has many fathers, too. So let's take AR, VR, you know, that whole thing, right? So, you know, if there were great killer apps, would people be buying those things? One would say yes. On the other hand, if those things were cheaper, less geekier, didn't make you look like a total geek at CES who's a freak, you know, walking around like a nutcase, then maybe more people would buy it. And if maybe more people would buy it, then more developers would write software. So which came first? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, they're kind of missing the three legs of your argument, right? Like they, they might have a really rich developer environment. Maybe you can do stuff mm-hmm. you were never able to do before for AR, VR. 
but they're certainly missing the third part of your argument that there is a compelling and transformative consumer argument that's going to take this to a billion people or, or more. It's yeah. sort of hard to so, see that right now, the volume. So, you know, one, listen, not everybody can create an iOS or Android or Apple or, or I mean, Macintosh or Windows. So that's a very high bar. But having said that, for an entrepreneur, an, an entrepreneur, I don't necessarily think should be thinking, okay, I want to be the next Apple. I think you should be creating something that you yourself would want to use. And lo and behold, if you really get lucky, maybe you'll be the next Apple. But to say, I'm going to be, you know, achieve world domination, listen, you'll be lucky to survive. So let's take the case of something like Google Glass, right? So Google Glass wanted worldwide domination. Everybody has one of these things. Well, it didn't quite work out that way. Was it because there were no killer apps or was it because it was too geeky? Who the hell knows? But if you think about it, there is a market for Google Glass in terms of, let's say, manufacturers. So manufacturers can buy a Google Glass with the manual for the Boeing 787 in the glass, right? So now when you're working on a 787, rather than carrying binders of manuals or iPads or tablets with your manual, with your parts list, now you can see it in front of your eyes and, you know, in a perfect world, you'd be looking at something and the glass will tell you, yeah, connect the blue wire to the green wire here, not simply, you know, displaying the manual, but also telling you what to do. If you can do that for manufacturing and then pretty soon you can teach people how to cook and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, then, you know, is that as broad as everybody has it? No, but in a, to use a Jeffrey Moore analogy, um, the way you get all the pins down in bowling is not by uh, throwing a strike. It's by hitting one pin down at a time. So the first pin for Google Glass might be manufacturing. Second pin might be, you know, repairs. And the third pin, who knows? And then one day Google might wake up and say, wow, Google Glass is a horizontal phenomenon. Most workspaces today are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do. Maybe at work, maybe not at work, but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work, in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds, there are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong, like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin. But that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So if we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, having a space that is diverse as the people are, that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business. So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. Exactly. And this is what I was thinking, too. I have Jeffrey Moore on the show. And what, what you were laying out with your evangelizing and with the notion of the killer app as the thing that you're hunting for as you meet this community is a mm -hmm. certain theory of the adoption curve about like what's happening mm -hmm. in those very early phases of the adoption curve. 
and mm-hmm. you know who are the, the the wackos who want to wear it even though it looks weird and then who are the guys who start adopting it these early adopter types and do you think there's contrast in in your theory versus the more way of thinking about it because you know more describes it kind of like a search process like you sort of make something you put it in front of a bunch of people you got to understand what they want you got to explain to them why it's relevant to their needs but maybe you're describing sort of listening and meeting their requirement listening and tailoring to them a thing that help that community get over the hump well you know just to make sure that i'm clear I'm not suggesting listening and tailoring your pitches, et cetera, et cetera, for the creation of your product. I'm suggesting this for the evangelism of your product. So the difference is crucial because, you know, Apple didn't listen to anybody's opinion about what a Macintosh should be. Macintosh is what Steve wanted it to be. Steve was right. Steve is more right than most people. He may be more right than anybody, but anyway, so Steve was right in his vision of Macintosh. I'm talking about how you take what is Macintosh and you package it so that people will like it. That's not the same thing as go to people and say, well, what would you like in a personal computer? Because if you did that, all they would tell you is better, faster, cheaper Apple II, better, faster, cheaper MS-DOS machine. Nobody. It's not the customer's job to know what they want or, you know, yes. Henry Ford, faster horses point. But those two communities are still at work today under different names now than they were then and even before. And I, would, I like to sometimes think of these two communities as uh, there's this one group that, you know, looks a little bit like Paul Graham, the maker, make something that you know you want because you have special mm-hmm. insight. You're an artist. Don't let anyone judge you. Then the mm-hmm. question after you have made the thing is to take it to market. Different community looks a little bit like Steve Blank, lean, agile, iterate, iterate, throw up a bunch of stuff, find a little clue that yes. you should develop and push that along. And they work side by side today. And depending on who you're speaking to at which company, one recipe or the other worked for them. Uh, and I wonder if you think there I is could. a way to choose between them for your situation. <laughs> I could not have articulated that better. Having said that, I have no answer for your question. Uh, <laughs> I basically think that it's kind of staged. It, you know, you, you're two guys in a garage, two gals in a garage, a guy and a gal in a garage. You ask a simple question like, is there a better way? You know, is there something we would rather use? You create it. Hopefully you like it. And hopefully, even more hopefully, you're not the only two psychopaths in the world that like it. So, you know, when Stephen Waz made an Apple One, it wasn't clear that there would be a personal computer industry. Just they were lucky that they weren't the only two nutcases who wanted a personal computer. If they were the only two nutcases that, you know, wanted a personal computer, then they would have worked for coffee shops for the rest of their life. So, I mean, they dance. It's One or the other is leading at a different time, I find. And depending on the mood of the individual entrepreneur, you hear them say they were one or the other. I, I think yeah. most narratives often apply to the, to the really great and successful companies. I have another question I want to prosecute with you a little bit uh, in this golden age. You were working alongside the school of Regis McKenna. Education mm-hmm. is the best marketing. And I wonder whether you felt you were overlapping and playing off each other and sort of, you know, spreading wow. the gospel you were doing education. Is that how you thought about it? And, and how would you describe the, the impact of well, the McKenna school? Well, Regis McKenna was a huge influence upon Apple and Steve. So, now, you know, people may not remember it that way, but he was had a very important role at Apple. And, you know, I mean, Regis McKenna, we were sitting, I mean, he was Yoda and we were, I don't know, 
I don't know the other character's name, but he was Yoda and we're the guy <laughs> sitting at his feet. So, yeah, I think that uh, he had a, a huge influence on this process of evangelism and positioning the tool for knowledge workers, you know, not simply making it a Fortune 500 MIS tool. All these years have passed, and I think you would agree, as modest as you are, that the notion mm-hmm. of evangelist and the work of evangelist has become a primary part of product introductions among the Silicon Valley tribe, and and perhaps well Mm -hmm. beyond that. I mean, you sort of know that when you Mm -hmm. make something great, most people are not going to get it, and you got to do this different kind of sale with them early on, whether Mm -hmm. it is developers or even customers. Uh, Mm -hmm. And you got to have this kind of moment of magical transformation in their mindset that converts them from skeptic to believer, and then they Mm -hmm. will go do the work of proselytizing further. As all these years have passed, there, I mean, it was, there must be a smile on your face, but I wonder how you feel the idea has developed and achieved its potential, but also, you know, ways it may have lost the thread. I mean, people call it evangelical. That's a mistake. Evangelistic. Okay. Corrected. <laughs> <laughs> I think that 90% of evangelism is a great product or a great service. And there's no doubt in my mind that it's easy to evangelize something great. I've evangelized two great things in my life, Macintosh and Canva, and they are very easy to evangelize. But I have also tried to evangelize less great things. And let me tell you, it's very hard. So You do try when someone gives you a steaming pile and you, and you got to go take it, take it well, to the customer. Well, here's the problem. Uh, I wish it were that simple is that, you know, you don't know what's solid gold in a steaming pile at the point you make a decision to support it. I never made a decision where I had a pile of shit that I knew was a pile of shit. And I said, okay, let's just go evangelize it. It ain't that simple. I mean, every time I squeezed the trigger, I thought I had something great. (laughs) Just, I was wrong. Fascinating. Do you think you're more susceptible to these misjudgments of enthusiasm and passion than your customers were on the other side of the table? Uh, well, you know, there's a saying that the easiest person to sell to is a salesperson. So you could, <laughs> could make the case not my that the easiest guy, not my experience. Yeah. The, the, the absolutely classic line you get from sales teams that I have been responsible for is stop giving me crappy product and I'll sell more. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. We're just necessarily disagreeing. So I, a salesperson is more susceptible to great products because a salesperson is fundamentally an optimist. And, you know, wants the action. And so I know it's easy to sell me in areas that I'm susceptible for. I'm totally easy to sell to. And I would also make the case that the easiest person to evangelize is an evangelist. How interesting. I mean, in a way, this is the mirror image of the adoption curve you're describing because the mirror image is who's inside, who's making that crazy product, the wild person that's dreaming a big dream, and then who carries the message out. But your tribe should be very aware of this concept that of the product adoption life cycle is out the window. You know, the theory used to be that there are these influencers, these people at the top of the pyramid, and then they would tell the early adopters and the early adopters would tell the you know the slightly behind people and the slightly behind people would tell the next people and eventually it becomes mainstream i completely disagree with that theory that it's a pyramid and at the top of the pyramid is the wall street journal and you know the tech publications well those um, hierarchies have certainly changed but you're saying that, that there isn't an influence hierarchy of some kind now i mean the wall street journal hardly matters anymore it once did 
He had to go work yeah. it with uh, Walt Mossberg and win his review. Okay, that's over now. But you start yep. somewhere else now, right? Or is it just all scrambled? Well, I would make the case that nobodies are the new somebodies. And so let's take a, a, an example that I'm very familiar with, which is books. Okay. So it used to be that you waited for the New York Times or the Washington Post or Kirkus or, you know, whoever to review books. And if they said, yeah, you know, get this new book by whatever, you, know, you, you bought it. Right. But today, all that matters is the average score on Amazon and the first few reviews that you read. And the first few reviews that you read are not by the New York Times and it's not by a professor of literature. It's by Lonely Boy 15. And so, so if you go to Amazon the day after a book is announced and it's averaging four and a half stars, and Lonely Boy 15 and, you know, Tiffany from L.A. says it's great. And you read one more, you click one click and boom, you bought it. You're not waiting for the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post anymore. Your right. tribe needs to these be lead users, these, these first and most visible. But they actually do share a lot of the characteristics of that product cycle where they're out there trying new stuff. They're, they're sort of trying it to be first. You know, they'll, they'll write first yes. in the review. And they're, they're yeah. doing it to sort of share and be visible. And but, then after a bit, they're doing it to be credible and, and to gain prestige. Maybe they're not the Times, but they're no longer but, the apex of, of, the, of the media pyramid. That's true. Yeah, but I mean, I'm saying that you know, in fashion, do you think Elle and Women's Wear Daily control right, what over. people wear yeah, no, anymore? Over. Yeah, you're right. It's over. It's over. So, and I guess the whole world has turned upside down. And power has moved to the fringes of really all the power structures. Yeah. Users are more important good. now than IT managers. And yeah. Yeah, fascinating. So in in the fullness of the development of the evangelistic sale, you have no quibbles to strike with the folks that are out there saying they're doing it. I think it's a big I think it's a big well, <laughs> idea that you're making that uh, that, mean, that you're sort of vulnerable to the in, to the product guys sort well, of vision. Then you go out in, there and try to land it. You know that you're not like overly choosy and troublesome. Uh, you know, just waiting until you get the, the perfect pitch to go and swing. You go swing. But in a rare moment of humility, let me just say that who the hell am I to judge other people's evangelism? I mean, okay, well, lengthy career uh, evangelizing one of the great products, and I guess your Canva is like a monster that you've been involved with over these last five or eight years. It kind of came from nowhere, honestly. I mean, this is a Garage Ventures creation that you, that you invested in and got involved in through that through that no, method. No, no, not at all. Canva? Oh, mm. no, 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 no. Canva. Uh, I've been involved with for five years, and they found me because my social media assistant was using Canva to make tweets. And so they reached out to me when they noticed I was using their product and asked me if I'd like to get together, and the rest is history. So it had nothing to do with Garage, nothing to do with, honestly, with guys selecting them to use at first. You know, my social media assistant was using them. They reached out to me. I said to her, is this the company you've been telling me about? She said, yes. I said, do you like them? She said, yes. Then I asked her, well, should I help them? She said, yes. That's why I work with Canva. Amazing. These last few years you've been running, if I'm not mistaken, I think you're past your first fund with Garage, right? I'm no longer active with Garage. Garage really isn't active. I would not say that I can claim success as a venture capitalist. Oh, no. I don't like the business. I just, just not. I don't like saying no all the time, beating the crap out of people all the time. When I have the opportunity to summarize the business of entrepreneur versus venture, yeah. the entrepreneur yeah. says yes, the investor says no. 
99 of 100 answers for the venture person are no. And in my business building companies, 99 times it's yes, here's how, and this is the way. Well, I think what, what people confuse is viability and fundability. So there are companies that are fundable, but certainly have proven not to be viable. But there are also companies that are viable that are not venture capital fundable. And people think that the two things are the same. They are not at all the same. Totally. Yeah. I mean, people, product, and market are three hugely important ingredients. But of course, financeability is a critical factor in deciding any company. You could have a wonderful idea, but if there's not enough of a consensus among the investor community, the first round, second round, third round, it's going to be very difficult. And that's, that's a little bit this fundability theme, isn't it? Yeah. If given a choice, you said, you know, God, here's a choice, God. Oh, this is more accurately. If God said to you, guy, you can have a company that's fundable or viable. What do you think I'd pick? I'd pick viable all day long. Yeah, it seems listen, so listen, shallow and pragmatic to focus only on companies you can fund. I, I, I'm, I've never been a fan of those. Yeah, those entrepreneurs well, Theranos is fundable. <laughs> That's a, I mean, it might be a cheap shot, though. I, there are many things wrong with Theranos, and um, only one of them is a, that, that it was fundable. I'm not saying Theranos is fundable as a cheap shot. I'm showing you that... Ternos was in the game in the sense of it appealed to well a bunch of rich old white men. No, but, I think I mean, you're right. Either, yeah, no, I think you're right. I think you're right. And, and I, I, I take your point. I mean, I didn't mean to, to tease yeah. you on that point. I think it's I think it's certainly true. It is not necessary and sufficient that the thing be fundable. What is necessary is that it be viable and may or may not be sufficient that it's viable. But those are the most exciting companies. Okay, so now, guy, you're ready. Yeah. You've given me much of your lore and wisdom, uh, yeah. and I'd like him to know to reach billions of people around the world someday, some way. I guess yeah. that's world domination, as you laid it. Perhaps I'm a little premature in talking about it after having yeah. spoken to just a few dozen people. But give me a little yeah. wisdom. You, you, you've written all these bestsellers. You're like hugely influential author, speaker, advisor, mentor. And uh, now I'm your mentee. How do I take yeah. this thing? Well, first of all, I wish I could have the magic answer for you because if I had that magic touch, <laughs> yeah, I would be in a very You'd use it more place, often. It, yeah, well, so, so I'll give you the mental framework that should basically influence everything you do. So you just have to imagine the famous two-by-two two matrix where the vertical axis is degree of differentiation and the horizontal axis is the degree of value. And all of your effort in terms of what you do who you interview, how you distribute it, everything, positioning, branding, development, everything should be towards the goal of having a podcast or whatever platform you define yourself as that is unique and valuable. And that's where history is made. So if you have the tense in a podcast that interviews entrepreneurs, then you're not unique. Uh, you may be valuable, but... I'm in a bad spot in that case. I have too many I have too many famous innovators just like all the other big media properties. I got to break out. Well, I don't know about break out, but you have to break away. So, you know, why would I listen to your podcast as opposed to Inc. Magazine or Entrepreneur or Fast Company or Wired or I don't know. I don't even know who your competition is. So that's the key. I mean, you're right. If you look at my interview list, it doesn't look that different from like, you know, Bloomberg or whatever. And those guys are able to assemble lots of famous names. Usually on the other side of that conversation is not an entrepreneur and builder and theorist of things. So maybe somehow there's something about 
me and the way I, I take these. And, and maybe there's something about the content itself. So instead of just whatever you end up doing when you're interviewed, I, I assume you're interviewed like every week or something. Has this thing been any different? Has this thing been any different than the last hundred of them? Okay, I, I will not, you know, blow smoke at you, but you're one of the most intelligent <laughs> interviewers I've ever dealt with. I mean, <laughs> oh, you, shut up, guy. You said you wouldn't blow smoke at me. No, 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 no shit. I mean, not that many people understand can just like okay cite jeffrey moore and i can use all these metaphors and analogies and historical references so you got them all you got them all i can't say that about most interviewers maybe the angle is that it's something about me no nobody gives a shit who you are i mean if you're reed hopkins maybe but not but you're pointing <laughs> to some quality of mine it's not going to be like i'm going to talk about myself but it's something about what i'm doing with you not something that some other person could do with you you know I, I get interviewed all the time i have not noticed many interviewers who are facile and as uh, with it as you in terms of these references so you know you're well prepared and you have a breadth of knowledge so just take that for what it's worth all right all right <laughs> <laughs> thank you guy so much for being on the know you are amazing you are amazing okay thank you take care and uh, oh, I should plug my recent book. I have a book called Wise Guy. I don't know if you're aware of that. Wise Guy available now has all my wisdom in it. And so, you know, if this podcast whets your appetite, then Wise Guy will satiate you. Well, Lonely Boy number 10 is going to give you a fabulous review. <laughs> thank you again, uh, Thank you. Bye. <laughs>